And welcome to everybody back to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. This is Steve Larchuk, and many thanks to our national sponsor, Pair Networks, world-class web hosting and domain registration. Learn more about them by going to pair.com. That's pair, P-A-I-R.com. This program is limited to serious, incredible discussion of healthcare politics, finance, and technology. But we'll start with a little bit of news. And boy, is there a lot of news. Just this morning, uh, February 27th, this morning, the president met with insurance executives, insurance, uh, health insurance executives. If you watched that, you looked around the room and you noticed that the only woman present was Kellyanne Conway, so I'm sure that fills you with confidence. There was only one person of color that was an executive from Kaiser Permanente in California, and uh, it was interesting that the president refused to call the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act by its actual name. Instead, he continues to use the word or the term Obamacare over and over again because he knows that when you ask people, do you like Obamacare, a certain percentage say no. But when you ask if they like the Affordable Care Act, those same people will say yes. So, of course, this president, uh, with his commitment to honesty and candor, likes to use the term Obamacare so he can. Uh, deceive people into what he's that, that he's really talking about the Affordable Care Act. Uh, Mr. Trump also uh, did not mention anything about the consumer protections. He did not mention a thing about uh, drug prices or the drug increases. Uh, he did indicate that uh, whatever he does, it'll be a beautiful thing. So that's certainly comforting. Vice President uh, Pence was present, and of course. Uh, as governor, uh, Mr. Pence was the governor of Indiana, and of course the president failed to mention that last year Indiana actually saw a 3% decrease in its premiums. That's that's not a, a speco or a typo. Decrease, 3% decrease in premiums in Indiana, but of course that was not mentioned by the vice president or the president. Uh, also in the news, of course, are large crowds appearing at many, many uh, town halls, principally uh, Republican members of Congress town halls. And as you have been seeing and hearing on your own, considerable uh, talk about and objections to any repealing of the Affordable Care Act. Uh, The president has declared as a fact that a huge number of those people are actually paid uh, political operatives. Of course, no evidence is offered of that, but just saying it is obviously enough. Um, as a result of these uh, outpourings of democratic uh, instincts, a lot of members of Congress have simply canceled town halls, even if they were scheduled. Some aren't even bothering to schedule them, of course, but many are scheduling and them just failing to show up, which is pretty cheeky. Uh, they obviously believe that uh, 2018 is so far off into the future that all of us will have short memories and forget about what's going on. Of course, the Republican leadership came out and uh, still, still, still has not actually put forth a legislation for us all to look at. They've had uh, how many years? Let's see, seven years since the Affordable Care Act was passed to come up with something better. They've certainly had since November when they knew they would be in charge to come up with something better, but they still haven't. They've come up with bullet points, but that's it. 
Uh, also, uh, the Quinnipiac poll and the Kaiser Health polls came out. Quinnipiac indicated 54% of the people polled actually support the Affordable Care Act. Uh, the president has about a 40% approval rating, so he is being outpolled by the Affordable Care Act rather dramatically. John Boehner, a former Speaker of their House, came out and said he doesn't believe that the Affordable Care Act will be repealed, but maybe just tweaked, which is pretty amazing. So, so much news. We'll be back shortly with the commentary, and you are at Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. Adopt U.S. Kids presents Multiple Choice Parenting. You're bringing your daughter to her favorite pop star's concert. Do you A, wear earplugs? Isn't this fun, Dad? I have a soft pretzel. B, remember the moment with matching concert t-shirts. That's going to be 180 bucks. Or we can just take a photo. C, show her how you used to do concerts. We're going crowd surfing. I can't. It's too heavy. Oh, my God. Or D, just roll with it. Woo, Justin! Look at us, we're over here! Justin, Justin! OMG! He just looked... I love you, Justin! I love you! When it comes to parenting, there are no perfect answers. But that's okay, because you don't have to be perfect to be a perfect parent. Teens in foster care will love you just the same. For more information on how you can adopt, visit adoptuskids.org slash AL. A public service announcement from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. And welcome to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. This is Steve Larchuk. I'm an attorney and healthcare advocate. Many thanks to our national sponsor, Pair Networks, world-class web hosting and domain registration. Learn more about them by going to pair.com. That's P-A-I-R.com. This program is committed to serious and credible discussion of healthcare politics. It is all substance all the time. And here, we dare to be reasonable. Uh, Most uh, radio shows take an extreme position and they just cater to a small portion of the public and just keep feeding the red meat to their listeners. We try to do something else. We dare to be reasonable. Here we also agree with Martin Luther King Jr. who said, of all forms of injustice, inequality in healthcare is the most shocking and inhumane. If you don't agree with that, I'm not sure you are in the right country. So check your passport, and maybe you need to go someplace where they don't believe in such things. Here we do believe that everyone counts. Later in the show, we have a terrific guest, uh, and all of our interviews are extended interviews. So the, the guest today is Dr. Walter Sue, who is a leader in healthcare reform. He's a consultant across the country. He's been speaking at least a thousand times. He's the former president of the American Public Health Association, former Philadelphia Commissioner of Health, and he uh, certainly has a lot to say about where we've been, where we're going with health care reform. So stick around for that. It'll be very interesting. Uh, Before we go to Walter, I want to talk a little bit about history. Uh, I am actually a uh, history 
uh, or historian, I should say. When I went to college, that's what I always wanted to be. So I always uh, relish the opportunity to talk a little bit about history. But I'm not talking about ancient history here. I'm talking about 10 years ago. And I, wanna, I want to address what seems to have slipped the memory of just about every Republican in Congress, and that is, what was it like before the Affordable Care Act was passed? What was it like before? If we get our little crystal ball out and think about it and think about it, let me just say that's where they want to take us back to. So it's not just academic. This isn't just something for history nerds. If the Republicans really have their way and if they really mean what they're saying in Washington, this is where they want us to go back. Back before the Affordable Care Act, premiums were rising at least 25% every year every year. And if, if you've been paying attention, yes, there are some uh, states in the United States that have seen very dramatic increases. Maybe you suffered some of those in the past year. But in fact, compared to the way it was, the increases have been dramatically less uh, under the Affordable Care Act. As a matter of fact, in Indiana, the state of Indiana, where our new vice president was governor, the Affordable Care Act base comparison premiums went down by 3%. So before the Affordable Care Act, pr premiums were completely out of control. But what was worse was that the insurers, the private insurers who ran things, not only would raise the premiums, but they would lower the amount of coverage. It was commonplace to see your premium go up, but your coverage go down. And they could do that because there were no established standards. When you go into a grocery store, uh, and you look at different products, they are, generally speaking, the same amount of, of ounces of this and the same quality. And there's a, if you buy a steak, you can tell what the quality of steak is by the label. Before the Affordable Care Act, there was no such thing. Every, every insurance policy was a one-off. And frankly, I could sell you insurance all day long for $100 a month. I just wouldn't cover anything. So that when you would go to the hospital, they would say, well, nice insurance, but it doesn't cover what you have. And really, that is what the Republicans are pushing hard for. Every time you hear about this, this business about how insurance companies should be able to sell insurance across state lines, what they mean is they want some state, like Texas, for example, to establish the lowest standard of quality for an insurance policy. And then, of course, it'll cost less because, as I said, I could sell you a policy for $100 a month. It just wouldn't cover anything. And they can then, if they can sell across state lines, then they can sell that same Swiss cheese insurance policy anywhere in the country and dominate the insurance industry. Right now, they can't do that because insurance is regulated state by state. So every state has the power to require that insurance policies have at least a certain threshold of uh, legitimacy. But the Republicans don't want that. They want to go back to the bad old days. Before the Affordable Care Act, it was also commonplace for ins private insurance companies to cut somebody off of their insurance if they actually had the temerity to get sick. In other words, if you got uh, cancer or, some, or even diabetes or something like that, it was commonplace for the insurance company when they noticed some claims coming in for cancer treatments to just say, we're cutting you off. We're firing you as a member of our insurance group. We don't care that you've been paying your premiums. We don't care that you've paid them steadily for decades or years and years. 
we don't want to insure you anymore because you're sick and you're going to cost us some money. The Affordable Care Act made that no longer legal. You couldn't do that anymore. Private insurers were also spending an exorbitant amount of premium dollars on things other than health care. Before the Affordable Care Act, it was commonplace for a private insurer to spend 25 to 35% and even more of the premium dollars that we were all paying and our employers were paying on things other than health care. The Affordable Care Act said, no, you can't do that. You have to spend, Mr. Insurance Executive, at least 80% of the money you take in on actually providing health care. And if you don't, you have to make a refund to the members of your policy, the buyers of your policy, to reimburse them for the fact that you overcharged. And for a couple of years, that actually happened. People were getting checks until the insurance companies figured out maybe they should behave themselves, that this was serious. But the Republicans, they want these private insurance companies to go right back to doing whatever they wanted to do. Uh, Employers, of course, were dropping health insurance policies like crazy. They were making it so that if you, they kept a group health policy that the employee had to pay a higher share. They were reducing the scope of what was covered. It was, to use our president's term, a disaster. It was a disaster. And of course, the Republicans, despite having had decades to try and come up with a solution, didn't come up with any ideas whatsoever. Young people who were graduating from college were going out into a workforce and we were the throes of the recession and employers just weren't going to hire young people if they had to put them on insurance so they just weren't putting them on insurance. It was common for uh, even labor union negotiations to be fought like crazy over what's going to happen with health insurance. The total number of uninsureds was climbing it was at 50 million and climbing, and during any point during the an entire year, at some point during the year, 80 million people uh, in this country, this United States of America, were without health insurance of any kind at some point during the year. Now, that is the way it was. When you hear these people. Uh, principally conservative, extreme conservative Republicans like Jim Jordan, for example, talking about how uh, the Affordable Care Act ruined the health care system in this country. It is, to, to call it a lie is an understatement because a lie is sort of an innocent thing sometimes. It's worse than that. It's a diabolical effort to change your ability to appreciate the truth. There's no such thing as going back to this without a considerable amount of pain across the economy, and that includes not just individuals who will suffer, but also corporations who require that they have customers. And I think one of the things that Republicans fail to appreciate is that without healthy customers, you don't have an economy. And so we need to do something. So that's um, a little history lesson. We're going to be coming back in just a few minutes with Walter Sue. Do stand by for that. Walter is in great demand. We're very lucky to get him on the show. This is Steve Larchuk, Healthcare Politics. See you on the other side. One of the dirty little secret all over this land. A free market monster with invisible hands. I love the names. 
Bobcat Farm, Golden Eagle Ranch, Long Prairie, Pintail Vineyard, Roadrunner Ranch, and Ten Mile Farm. They conjure up Americana, the old home place, and our rich rural culture. Less bucolic, however, is the fact that all are part of a massive Wall Street investment scheme called Farmland Partners, Inc. It's run by a couple of slicks trained in mergers and acquisitions as executives at the investment powerhouse Merrill Lynch. Rather than sodbusters, Farmland Partners are taxbusters, using a legalistic plow called REIT, Real Estate Investment Trust, to get enormous tax breaks to subsidize their scheme. With this special subsidy, the partners have attracted hundreds of millions of dollars from investors to buy up farms and ranches. They now own 295 ag properties, covering 144,000 acres in 16 states. Of course, the Wall Street plowboys don't soil their own soft hands by actually farming. No, no, the syndicate hires tenant farmers to do the sweaty work of plowing, planting, and nurturing the crops. This tenant system produces a double-line cash flow for the faraway owners. Farmland Partners charges the tenants rent for tilling the corporate soil. Then the partners harvest a sweet share of any profits from the sale of crops the tenants produce. Meanwhile, the young farmers America desperately needs—those who actually want to, you know, farm—are having a hard time finding affordable land to get started. These new generation farmers can easily be outbid for good land by Wall Street speculators who have the cash flow from tenants and the subsidy from taxpayers to underwrite their financial contrivance. This is Jim Hightower saying to prevent the money schemers from literally walling off young farmers and to fight this insidious Wall Street takeover of agriculture. Connect with YoungFarmers.org. What do the corporate powers from Wall Street to Walmart have in common? They hate the Hightower Lowdown. You can see why at www.hightowerlowdown.org. We are the BCTGM, the union representing bakery workers. We have been joining forces with our members and thousands of community partners across America to end corporate exploitation of workers across the globe. Our campaign has its roots with the Mondelez Nabisco's firing of 600 workers at its Chicago bakery and replacing them with workers earning poverty wages in Mexico. College and university student activists have reached out to our global campaign, and the BCTGM is proud to welcome the more than 20 million students across America as partners in defeating this greed-based business model. Student voices have changed the world, and these future community and national leaders will add energy and heightened spirit to the BCTGM's consumer boycott of Mexican-made Nabisco products. Join the fight. Help change the world. Invite the Nabisco 600 team to your campus by visiting fightforamericanjobs.org. Follow us on Facebook at Nabisco 600 BCTGM Local 300. While college and university tuitions go up and up, higher education administrators have been spending less on students' education. Today, only a quarter of higher ed faculty has secure full-time jobs. The rest are so-called adjunct faculty, hired on a per-course temporary basis, often with no benefits, and are paid just $2,700 on average per course. Dedicated adjunct faculty across the country are joining together and fighting back in defense of their students' future. In Pittsburgh, they have formed the Adjunct Faculty Association, affiliated with United Steelworkers Union. Adjuncts and students all over the city are joining the AFA to achieve the goal of providing high-quality, affordable higher education. To know more or to support Pittsburgh's adjunct faculty, give us a call at 412-562-6967 or find us on the web at uswo.org. 
Again, that's 412-562-6967 or usw.org. Together, we can take higher education back. And welcome to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. And this is Steve Larchuk, and welcome to the show. Today we have a very important guest. Walter Sue is a physician, and he'll introduce himself a little bit here in a moment or two. But of all the people that I could have asked to be a guest on the show, Walter was near the top of the list. This is somebody who has been a leader and advocate for health care reform for a very long time, but he does it in a very down-to-earth, I call it unwonky uh, way. So uh, without further ado, let me uh, introduce Walter Sue. Walter, welcome to the show. Well, thank you, Steve. It's been Great a pleasure. Be it's been, well, you're more than welcome, and thank you so much. Many in the audience uh, who are real healthcare devotees already know who you are, but why don't you take a moment and tell us where you're from and, and what you do day to day these days? Well, I'm from Philadelphia, uh, Pennsylvania, and I've been in this business around healthcare reform since probably 1990, so at least 25 some years. Uh, right now, I'm actually working with a lot of different nonprofit groups to try to improve public health in the Philadelphia area and across the country. One of them is, of course, is a group called Physicians for a National Health Program. It's a group of doctors who really want to push a single-payer health care plan for this country. Well, you've also held some national positions in your day. At one time, you were the Commissioner of Public Health for Philadelphia, but you were also President of the American Public Health Association for a while. That's right. I was, and... Uh, that gave me a, a true appreciation uh, for the importance of public health and um, sort of the frontline view of, of what we can do in public health and some of the limitations. Part of it is because of our uh, dysfunctional healthcare system that limits our ability to actually do all the things that we would like to do in public health. Well, you mentioned that you really dove into this in 1990 and uh, as a historian. I recall that that was sort of the first time or the first era when people dove seriously into health care reform. And in 1992, uh, President uh, Bill Clinton was elected and put uh, then very youthful-looking Hillary Clinton in charge of trying to develop a national health care plan. Uh, that didn't go so well, but some good things came out of it. For example, the Children's Health Insurance Program and a few other things. But... Uh, Tell me, from your point of view, how have things changed since 1990? Here we are, 2017, so you've been at this a long time. How would you, how would you sort of describe that path? Well, um, unfortunately, uh, in those years, we still don't have universal health care in this country. It's something that, it's from one of those platitudes that we've been arguing about for a long time. Perhaps the biggest change that I think has happened in the practice of medicine and healthcare is sort of the dominance of the for-profit um, money orientation to the healthcare system. It's a it's a large, giant medical industrial business complex that's developed, and frankly, uh, not necessarily leading to better care. So. Um, it's one of the great um, challenges for those of us who really believe in public health 
to try to um, make the, house, the, the argument that we could do a better job and other countries manage to provide health care uh, just as good, if not better, for less money. Right now, there are a number of uh, groups around the country that have been around either for short periods of time or for decades. And I think recently you had meetings in, was it New York City, of uh, advocates for single payer. Uh, were you involved in that? Yes, I was. I was at that conference. It was uh, just to give you a sense, uh, you know, this was the national health care or single payer strategy meeting. Um, I think the first one I went to maybe had 30 or 50 people in the room. This one had over 500. And I think um, they and they told me they turned away over 100 people who were at the door. I mean, it was just overwhelming how many people are now interested in this topic because, as um, people realize, the pre- president has said that he's going to repeal Obamacare and come up with a replacement plan that's better. Uh, we believe, of course, that the only replacement plan that can be better is something like a single-payer plan for this country. Do you think there's an opportunity here in 2017 that we uh, may not really appreciate? Uh, if, it, For example, uh, Donald Trump says lots of things, and sometimes he will contradict himself within the same five minutes or even the same sentence. But one of the things that he has said over and over again is that he believes that every everyone should have uh, access to health care and that uh, he's going to make sure that we have a, a wonderful system that's going to cost less and provide better care and be a beautiful thing. So let's let's assume for the moment he means that. Do you think that 2017 really offers the opportunity for that to happen? Well, anytime there's a new president, there's a, they, they all want to put their own stamp on the health care system. And you're right, the president has actually said that um, we're going to get a better health care plan for less money. And the only way he can really achieve that, I believe, is single payer. Now, in the debates during the primary, he was challenged about whether he supports single payer. And he answered by saying that it works in Canada, it works very well in Scotland. Uh, and you got the sense that he understands that single-payer, in fact, is a better system. But because he's running on the Republican ticket, he can't really say that too loudly. Uh, the interesting thing is that I think, actually, if Republicans really thought about it, um, single-payer is actually their plan. It would cover more people, and it does it for less money. And that, I think, is very consistent with conservative values. So... Um, I think Donald should should use his influence and put forward why a single-payer plan could be better for this country. Well, the the battle right now on the advocacy, the health care reform group's uh, advocacy, uh, really centers around two different philosophies of how to approach this. One is to try and get a federal plan, whether you call it Medicare for All or something like that, versus a state-by-state approach. Now, when you were up at this most recent conference, what what was the prevailing uh, sentiment? Which way did did people want to go? I think uh, everyone wants to try to get a national health insurance program. We we realize that um, it's the most um, practical and logical way of providing health care for everybody. It answers many of the questions that 
estate plans always struggle with, like, how do we do portability from one state to another? And um, what about the Medicare program? How can you have Medicare in one state? And doesn't that disrupt the entire Medicare program if you were to break it up? So lots of reasons for why we, we would push for a national program. Uh, unfortunately, the lobbyists really understand this, and they have really put, like, uh, their planted their feet in the ground there, and they're, they're swarming all over Washington, and they will do everything they can to try to prevent something like a single-payer plan from happening at the federal level, which is why many of us have actually tried to create state initiatives around single-payer, because we realize that if one state actually can prove that it works, uh, other states will quickly follow. Well, of all the states out there, which which state do you think is the most likely to go go alone? Well, that's an uh, interesting question. You know, there was a time when uh, we had a lot of hopes for Vermont, um, but actually in the final analysis, the governor said that he, we really can't do it uh, in Vermont, even though um, he really ran and got reelected on the platform of single-payer. Right. Colorado. Well, Doctor Sue, let me let me just interrupt you there. We're, we've got you for a lot of uh, time here today, so we're going to take our time, take a break right now. When we get back, we'll finish the, talking about the individual states, but also, I want to discuss the hardest questions that, that you face when you go out there and talk. So we'll be back shortly. This is Steve Larchuk. This is Healthcare Politics. Talk to you soon. You're listening to Win Workers Independent News, a diversified media enterprises production. I'm Doug Cunningham. Former Obama Labor Secretary Tom Perez was elected over the weekend to chair the Democratic National Committee. He's vowing to rebuild the Democratic Party while changing the culture of both the party and the DNC. Keith Ellison, the favorite of the progressive Bernie Sanders wing of the Democratic Party, urged unity behind Perez, saying Democrats don't have the luxury of being divided. The AFL-CIO says if the leaked draft of the Republican health care plan is the one they go with, it's a non-starter. AFL-CIO President Rich Trumka says the leaked GOP health care plan lowers the health care bar when we should be raising it instead. He says the GOP is lowering America's health care under the guise of reform. Trumka also noted that the Republican plan would slash health care for tens of millions of Americans and impose a new tax directly on America's working people, threatening to destroy the health coverage we earn on the job. The recent victory by the National Nurses United California Nurses Association at Kaiser Permanente after a 17-month struggle has secured a good contract for 1,200 Los Angeles nurses and other 550 nurses at 21 Kaiser hospitals across northern and central California just became NNU-CNA union members. Deborah Berger is co-president of the National Nurses United and president of California Nurses Association. She says the Los Angeles Kaiser nurses were long overdue for a pay raise. These nurses have been without a pay raise for over six years. So this settlement is huge in many, many ways because those nurses have not given up. They uh, continued the struggle, and I am just really proud that they're part of the CNA and NU family. Berger says the Los Angeles Kaiser nurses made significant gains in this new contract. What they got was uh, wage gains up to 34% over four years. 
and for the nurses that had not received a pay raise in all of those years, there are some retro lump sum payments for those nurses, which is really precedent setting for nurses that have been without contracts for a long, 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 long time. The union nurses also ended mandatory overtime with the 550 new union nurses at Kaiser and approval of the Los Angeles Kaiser contract. CNA now represents 19,000 RNs in California. Sponsored by Iron Workers Impact, now reserving spots for this year's groundbreaking conference, welcoming contractors to grow their business by networking and attending world-class breakouts. More on this event in San Diego happening March 19th through the 22nd is found online at impact-net.org under events. Brought to you by unionjobs.com, posting jobs for unions, socially allied, and community organizations since 1997. You've been listening to WIN, Workers' Independent News. For more information, visit laborradio.org. The Sheet Metal Workers Local 12, reminding you that sheet metal is vital to technology and manufacturing in nearly every industry known to man. Sheet metal workers gain knowledge and skills in all aspects of sheet metal manufacture and fabrication, leading to a variety of career opportunities. The Sheet Metal Workers Local 12 is now accepting applications for apprentices. Requirements include a high school diploma or GED and a Pennsylvania driver's license. More information can be obtained online at smlocal12.org. That's smlocal12.org. Whoa. The moment my son saw a redwood tree. It's huge! Is the moment I knew that for him. You can't even see the top of that thing. Even the sky has no limit. There are some moments only the forest can inspire. Find yours at discovertheforest.org. Learn about forests near you and discover cool things to do when you go. Your moment is out there. Find it at discovertheforest.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Forest Service and the Ad Council. And we are back at Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. This is Steve Larchuk. And I am honored to have with us today Dr. Walter Sue. And before we took our break, we were just talking about uh, the state-by-state approach versus a federal approach to having a health care reform. And uh, Dr. Sue, you were just saying that Vermont looked like it was going to be the first olive out of the jar. Uh, you know, it's always the first olive is always the toughest. But there are other states uh, just off the top of my head, uh, California has taken a few runs at it, and uh, Illinois, uh, and some other states as well. So uh, it, we certainly can circle back to that state-by-state approach if, if a national approach fails. But I wanted to take time during this segment of the show to ask you uh, some of the toughest questions. Uh, you have... I don't know. Have you probably spoken on this subject a thousand times or more, would you say, over the last 27 years? <laughs> I've devoted a lot of my professional life talking about this issue. All right. Well, you, prob- you probably get, and there's an unhappy healthcare uh, person there. Uh, we, we probably get the same questions. I've only presented about a hundred times on healthcare reform, and you've done it. I'll bet you've done 2,000 presentations. But we tend to get the same questions over and over again. And I I personally welcome the hard ones because uh, just talking to people that agree with you doesn't move the ball very far. So let's talk about some of the hardest questions. Just off the top of your, your head, over the past three, nearly three decades, what would you say is the toughest question you get when you go out there and talk about single-payer and health care reform? 
Well, um, the ones are the tough ones are like, how are you going to get there? I mean, sounds like a great idea, but there's so many barriers in America that have been put together, and you'll never get it. And what I actually say is that um, you don't get to a goal unless you agree on where the the goal is. And if we agree that the goal is quality, affordable health care for all Americans, not just some, but all Americans, then the only uh, plan that actually can achieve something like that is a single-payer plan. There's a tremendous price that we pay for actually not achieving that. Uh, consider the fact that we spend 40% more per capita on health care than anyone else in the world, not 4, not 14, 40% more. And um, maybe in a global economy when we were like the, the king of the hill, uh, we could afford to do that, but we can't afford that anymore. We're in a tough competition with other countries. Uh, it's the, the labor costs in America is one of the reasons why our manufacturing base has moved overseas. And we're partly responsible because we've adopted a very expensive health care system that has saddled our employers from hiring anybody in this country. So we would do ourselves a tremendous service by actually creating a more efficient, cost-effective health care system that would help the business community and actually bring jobs back to America. I'm sure you get the accusation that you're pushing socialized medicine. When you get that one, how do you respond? Well, technically socialized medicine means that the government owns the entire system. They own the hospitals, they own the doctors, as well as the payment systems. And we're not asking for that. We actually believe in the marrying the two strengths of the American healthcare system. That is to say, private healthcare delivery and public financing. So we would publicly finance it, but we want the doctors and hospitals to remain private, and that means that they can actually have other sources of income for uh, their services, um, but that they, their paychecks don't, do not uh, come strictly from, um, and that they are subject to the, being an employee of the federal government. We don't want that. We want them to be private and to take advantage of um, all the things that our private um, system has in this country. As I listen to the debate that's raging now, it's amazing to me how many members of Congress uh, are railing against the Affordable Care Act and saying it has created all sorts of problems. And it's it, what surprises me, although I guess maybe it shouldn't, is how they never, ever accurately reflect what it was like before the Affordable Care Act. Uh, you've been at this for 27 years, so I'm sure you remember back uh, 10 years ago, before the Affordable Care Act came into play, what things were like. And uh, maybe you could educate well, the folks who forget. Yeah, well, you know, we were approaching 50 million Americans without health insurance at the time that we passed the Affordable Care Act. Um, we actually had um, uh, a system where uh, people who, with any pre-existing condition, could simply be denied coverage, and um, and insurance companies could actually write all kinds of crazy plans, take as much money as they can from people, and call that health insurance. So um, 
the Affordable Care Act actually put, started putting more restrictions on the insurance companies requ- requiring them to actually return more of the money to actually pay for claims and um, and also to put a more emphasis on prevention rather than simply the treatment of, of medical care. So there are a lot of advantages that the Affordable Care Act provided. The only problem with the ACA, I mean, there are a couple, lot of problems, but one of the big problems, frankly, that the Republicans are now facing is that it was actually a Republican plan that Obama adopted. It was a, this is a plan created by the Heritage Foundation, signed by a Republican governor in Massachusetts, Mitt Romney. And this plan actually was using private health insurance as the mechanism for providing health care for Americans. And the result is that now, in repealing a Republican plan, the Republicans are, fa- are realizing that the true alternative and opposite of the Affordable Care Act would be to say that health care is a public good and that we would do something like Medicare for all. And they find that really a dilemma for them. Well, I think we can see that the the Republicans were caught flat-footed when they actually won. Uh, they've been saying for years and years and years how awful the Affordable Care Act uh, is, voting some 60-plus times to repeal it. But that was always an easy thing to do because they were never faced with the question of, okay, smarty pants, what, what would you do uh, since you don't like the Affordable Care Act? And here they are, uh, somewhat chagrined, that they are actually expected to put up. And so uh, there are a number of plans being floated out there. We could talk about them for hours and hours and hours. I don't want to do that, but I want to go back to the tough questions. The one that I hear all the time is, how can we afford to take care of everybody? How is that possible? So how do you answer that question? Well, I would say that we can't afford not to take care of everybody. Uh, in, In truth, we do take care of everybody. People who come into hospital emergency rooms who don't have health insurance means that the hospitals have to jack up their bills to cover the uncompensated care. So when you pay your premiums, you're actually paying for a partial share of higher costs for that hospital care because that hospital is taking care of people who did not have health insurance. Uh, It was estimated by Families USA that we add an additional something like $1,000 to our premiums simply because we're covering uncompensated care. This is before the Affordable Care Act. But the point here is, is that we do cover the uninsured uh, by higher health care costs. And, um, and it's, it would be much simpler and much more logical and practical and actually would lower the cost for most Americans if actually everyone was covered. One of the reasons that a lot of us favor a single-payer system is because it's far more efficient. Are, are you still involved in the day-to-day practice of medicine? I don't practice medicine uh, now um, like I used to. I, I love practicing medicine, but it's very hard to practice medicine in this environment. It's all about um, making money and uh, not really trying to advance the public good. And So I decided after a while of practicing that I actually wanted to do public health and try to prevent the very illnesses that I spend most of my time taking care of. When we, and that's what I did. Well, and thank you for doing it. Dr. Sue, we're going to take another break, and when we come back, I'd like to talk about some broader public health issues, uh, the opioid epidemic, uh, end-of-life questions, and things like that. So 
I hope the audience will stay with us because we're going to talk about some things that are rarely discussed. And so I welcome you back. This is Steve Larchuk, Healthcare Politics. A free market monster with invisible hands. It's me, your heart. High blood pressure is serious. And if you think I'm just going to keep ticking away, you're wrong. I can quit whenever I want, but I like my job. Just treat me better. Maybe we can do some exercise on occasion. After all, we're in this together. Don't let your heart quit on you. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get yours to a healthy range before it's too late. Find out how at heart.org slash blood pressure. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. If you own a gun, you have a full-time responsibility. When you aren't using it, be sure it can't get into the hands of curious children, troubled teenagers, a thief, or anyone else who might misuse it. Your family, friends, and neighbors are all counting on you. Remember, always lock it up. For more information on firearm storage safety, visit ncpc.org. This message brought to you by the National Crime Prevention Council, the Bureau of Justice Assistance, and the Ad Council. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm Jason Derulo, and I love the fact that music connects to people all over the country. But unfortunately, so does something else. Childhood hunger. 15 million children struggle with hunger in America. However, the Feeding America nationwide network of food banks is able to help provide over 3 billion meals to children and families in need all across the country. Join me in the fight against hunger at feedingamerica.org. Together, we can solve hunger. Together, we're Feeding America. A message from Feeding America and the Ad Council. And thank you for listening. Welcome back to Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. This is Steve Larchuk, healthcare advocate, healthcare lawyer, and generally trying to do the right thing. And I have Exhibit A of doing the right thing with us today, Dr. Walter Sue. Uh, Dr. Sue, I wanted to reintroduce you for a moment for the people that are just joining the program. You are a physician from Philadelphia. You were the Commissioner of Health in Philadelphia, and you are uh, also a past president of the uh, uh, Public American Health Public American Health. Public Health Association. So I want to talk a little bit about some broader health care issues. I do want to mention that uh, we have uh, the support of Pair Networks, a world-class uh, web hosting company uh, and a domain registration company. They can be found at pair.com, P-A-I-R.com. Let's talk about the opioid epidemic. Uh, I'm sure you follow this day in and day out. And my question to you is, how did this happen? Was it always there and we just didn't notice? Or has something happened in the past five years that has made it so much worse? You know, there's always been sort of the addictive drug of choice that happens in every decade. I think when I was commissioner, crack cocaine was like the big hot thing, and it was um, destroying really uh, our communities. And now, uh, uh, you know, narcotics, uh, opioids, and heroin are out there. Heroin now, as a painkiller, is actually cheaper than some of the painkillers that you can buy through prescription drugs which is one of the reasons why uh, it's become a problem. But, you know, we as physicians have played part of the role because um, we have been giving large, you know, like a month's supply of of narcotics to individuals when they only need a few days' worth 
to get over their um, their surgery or whatever operation they may have had. And some people have just simply gotten hooked to it, or they've they start, started selling it to their friends. And next thing you know, we have uh, narcotics that are just all over the place. So uh, once you get hooked on some of these painkillers, um, you start seeking other uh, painkillers, and heroin becomes actually a very possible one that people have hooked, got hooked on. Another important thing that's happening in our society is the sort of graying or the gray tsunami, some people call it. The baby boomers are, have now moved into uh, older age, and we find ourselves with a situation where uh, millions and millions of people are getting into a situation where they have greater health care needs, uh, and we really don't have a strategy for that. And I'm wondering if, if you're seeing that as well in your your public health uh, practice, and, well, and what kind of things uh, you think can be done about it. As you know, we have never embraced the long-term care policy for this country, and as we get older, it's become even more difficult because the numbers are growing and the, the needs and demands are growing, and most politicians are unwilling to address this issue because uh, they're afraid of the multi-billion dollar cost to such a uh, problem. So like everything else, we dump everything under the Medicaid program. So what's surprising to a lot of people is that most of our nursing home care, or most of our Medicaid dollars is actually used for Medicaid and not taking care of poor children, which is one of the original intents. But that aside, um, you know, we as a country have to come to some to grips with this issue, um, most people want to age in their home. They don't want to actually get into a nursing home, and actually the care can be better that way. But we do not have a community-based, public health nurse-based uh, infrastructure where people embrace home health care, where people can uh, get visits uh, maybe from a professional or even to have somebody stay in your home uh, while you're very ill and infirmed. Uh, we don't have an infrastructure for that, and that becomes a real problem. And so at a time when we're trying to find more jobs for Americans and we're trying to be much more friendly, we need to rebuild an entire community health infrastructure for this country. And the only way we could afford something like that, in my mind, and save up enough money is if we reform our health care financing system. I, so that's one of the reasons why we're doing single-payer. <laughs> now, this is where I get into the uh, grandfather nag part of uh, the show. And I don't know if you're a grandfather. I'm not yet, but maybe. But the, not yet. <laughs> the, okay. Well, there's an ex old expression, Tip O'Neill, and he probably stole it from somebody else, that all politics is local. And when we talk about health care and health care politics, about the lo uh, the most local you can get is your own body. And one of the things that I concluded after presenting a hundred times on the subject was if we don't find a way to start managing our own health on a one-by-one -one individual basis, there's not enough money in the world to take care of people if we're all uh, determined to... Uh, become chronically ill. And so I wanted to take a moment and just ask you from a public health point of view, what can we do to shrink the need for health care? How can we reduce 
the, the amount of interventions and therefore the, the cost of health care? Well, I'll answer it with a story. You know, when I um, was in China and I visited my 92-year-old grandfather, uh, I, was, I, I saw him and he was sitting, he was bedridden, and the way he was cared for was that everybody in the family took time off from work and they did shifts and they would watch over him. And um, because uh, that was an, an acceptable cultural aspect of how families looked after other family members in China. And I thought to myself, we don't do that in America. We don't let people take time off from work and understand that that's actually an acceptable use of people's time. Is Rather than, um, you know, hiring people for doing this, it, we, we could do it for a lot cheaper by having... Uh, you know, time off for, for family leave. And I, I think, you know, that's what we, if we want to do it cheaper, we should do something like that in this country. And uh, we, could, we can do uh, longer-term care services within the home with a more loving environment with people with your family. And uh, it would be worth it for us rather than trying to uh, uh, try to come up with money and tax people for financing something that we as family members would do a, probably a better job doing. Dr. Sue, do you think there's a difference between living uh, and surviving? Is there a difference between living and surviving? Right. In other words, uh, some people just want to prolong life as, po- as long as possible, mm. pay whatever it costs, just just to survive. And then there are others who say that. Just just surviving is not the same as living. In other words, there's a quality of life aspect. And if all we do is uh, keep people's hearts beating, have we really done them uh, a service? And I'm just, yeah. it, this is a philosophical question that I probably should have asked earlier in the show. But just if you can give me your thoughts on that, having thought about it for a lifetime. Well, I do think that actually uh, people wanted some type of quality of life. If you ask most doctors whether they have what they call these um, uh, extended wills where they do, um, you're a lawyer, you know what the word is, <laughs> sort of health, health, you know, health, direct- health directives, you know, how much do you want uh, intubation, do you want this, yeah. do you want the other thing? Most doctors who have witnessed the healthcare system have actually said, listen, I don't want all those extended things. They want to. They want to be able to say, "Look, I have a quality of life that I, that I've lived to their fullest." And then, you know, they don't want to just be hanging on, racking up huge bills in a hospital, and not having any type of a quality of life or inability to communicate with their loved ones. So, uh, I do think that that's a worthy discussion for us as a nation, and one that, uh, again. Um, I'm a believer in hospice care and someone and end of life care, and we can do this in a much more humane and, and uh, way than what we do now. And that is one of the reasons this radio show exists. Healthcare politics it touches every single person. And I want to thank you, Dr. Sue, for joining us today. As I've said throughout the program, you are one of the the real leaders in a compassionate. Uh, 
non-wonky sort of presentation of the, the key things about healthcare, where we're going from here. Uh, if you wanted to direct people somewhere to learn more about uh, single payer, where would you suggest they go? Well, if you want to ask uh, the technical questions, go to PNHP, Physicians for National Health Program, PNHP.org. All right. Well, thank you so much, and we're going to wrap up this segment. I'll be back in just a few minutes with some final thoughts. Dr. Sue, thank you so much, and I look forward to seeing you again as we continue to work on this. The Alliance for Retired Americans brings activists together to educate and mobilize retirees around local, state, and national issues. Members work to strengthen three planks of retirement security, Medicare, Social Security, and pensions, and to improve the quality of life for current and future retirees. Their priorities include expanding Social Security benefits. The threats to Medicare, Social Security, and pensions are real, but the Alliance uses grassroots engagement and direct outreach to members of Congress to fight back. Recent successes include preventing a 50% Medicare premium increase that would have affected millions of retirees. Join the Alliance today at retiredamericans.org and help ensure that seniors' issues like high prescription drug prices get the attention they deserve. Thank you so much for rejoining us here at Healthcare Politics with Steve Larchuk. This is Steve Larchuk, and we have just had a very interesting uh, discussion with Dr. Walter Sue, and or before that, uh, you got to listen to me talk a little bit about the history of healthcare reform, just to, to try and remind people what it was like uh, all those years ago, back 10 years ago, before the Affordable Care Act, because it, it seems that our politicians are hoping we've all forgotten how bad it was, and they want to take us back there. So a little historian's uh, perspective is helpful from time to time. Thank you so much to all the people that are making this show such a success. Thank you, Michael Stout, for allowing us to use your great music, your inspirational music. Uh, Thank you, Ann McGeary, for helping us book our guests and doing other production services. Many thanks to TUE Media for all of its support. Uh, Thank you, uh, Angel Collini, for developing our logo. There's all sorts of people that are making this show possible. If you want to learn more about the show, please go to our website, healthcare-politics.com. That's healthcare-politics.com. And last, many thanks to our national sponsor, Pair Networks, world-class web hosting and domain registration. You can learn more about them at pair.com. And thank you so much. Looking forward to next week's show as we talk about healthcare politics. Well, there's a dirty little secret all over this land. A free market monster with invisible hands.